0: Hello and welcome, waves, islands, and anchors. This is the Human Nurture Podcast, and I'm your host, Jason Brand. And today we are going to be talking about the underlying element of the psychobiological approach to couples therapy of meditation. We are joined by George Haas. George leads meditation intensives through the Meta Group. George could not hit more levers for the pack therapist. Not only does he talk about meditation, but he also looks at it from an attachment lens. He looks at it through developmental neuroscience. And on top of all of that, George is trained in level one and two pack therapy. So he speaks the language. He makes it fresh again. That's what I really loved about this interview is that George takes things that we, you know, that we talk about all the time, attachment and neuroscience. and I think it's because he talks about it from a different lens, but it also is just the way that he talks about it, a certain irreverence, a lot of empathy, and he just makes it feel accessible, makes it feel like it's an exploration not only of the couple, but also in our own minds about how do we connect with ourselves and how do we stay in the present moment. Also, we've got Stan Tatkin who's going to be joining us to help us look at the interview with George, and to talk about how pact and meditation are tied together. With Stan, uh, what I really enjoy, he really talks about the interview in ways that I was hoping that this podcast would go, which is that he's he's sort of wrestling with some of the topics, he's a guide for us, and he's, and he's bringing it all into the lens of secure functioning. So I hope you enjoy, and here it goes. Hi Stan. Hi Jason. All right. So we're rolling here again. We got, uh, we got meditation and we got an interview with George Haas. Um, and let's just start out with, uh, with your, what's your background with meditation?
1: What's fascinating to me is uh, that George and I uh, come from uh, a similar root. Uh, and that is with, uh, Shinzen Young. Uh, Shinzen was my teacher for many years and, uh, uh, and got me into a uh, Theravadan uh, form of uh, of Buddhism um, and Vipassana. Some people say Vipassana, Vipassana, um, w- which is a, a, a s- sort of the original mindfulness practice mm. of, uh, of noting uh, and paying attention to, let's say, breathing uh, your breath or body sensations as they move throughout the body or thoughts rising and fading. Um, that's the... Uh, that's the mindfulness technique of noticing and allowing. And so we we come from that same place. And I think both of us ended up being instructors with Shenzhen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, uh, and so I, I, I found that kind of nice. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, he said that nice thing that I've heard you say, which is, you know, a good way to learn things is to teach them. And it yes. seems like Shin Zen Young, that was sort of one of his philosophies, to get people out and, and teaching.
1: Yes, because meditation is best done in the beginning by uh, by facilitating, doing it with another person. Because it is a lonely practice, can be a lonely practice. And in the beginning, it really helps to to meditate with somebody who is facilitating. Uh, I think it accelerates the the practice and understanding uh, how the practice works. Any good Shenzhen young stories that that you can that come to mind? Oh my God, there, there's so many. I I when I uh, I wrote the first book Love and War, I wrote Shinzen, and I said I just quoted you um, my statement. There's nothing more difficult on the planet than another person, uh-huh. and uh, he said he didn't remember saying it. <laughs> <laughs> But I still quote him because that was one line that always impressed me. Um, you know, Shenzhen taught me so much. We spent so much time together uh, that uh, he really, uh, I would say, uh, uh, floating in, a, in an isolation tank and my work with Shenzhen did more to uh, deal with my existential angst about death and dying and my anxiety in general. Uh, than just about anything else. Really? Um, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then eventually also working with, uh, with uh, acute pain.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So uh, uh, Isolation Tanks is maybe another episode.
1: Yes, that will be another episode. <laughs> okay. my, my fondness for them, yes. <laughs> oh,
0: cool. Um, and the um, – so, so George has this nice thing where he says, you know, I started out teaching fear, and then people ask me about anger, and then I started teaching. And then it sort of goes down the line into attachment. And he sort of settles on becoming an attachment, um, sort of teaching meditation from the point of view of attachment. Which came first for you, attachment or meditation?
1: Oh, meditation for sure. Really? Yeah, meditation for sure. And uh, and I'd say you know attachment, yes, because um, we have to understand attachment is uh, is about fear. Attachment is about memory. It's about what happens to me if I depend on somebody, and my memory of that going all the way back to the very beginning. And so, uh, so dealing with attachment is really dealing with arousal because when you're in attachment distance with somebody, when you are uh, interacting with them, uh, you know, for an extended period of time, uh, that that hits the attachment system. But it's it's really affecting. Uh, the arousal uh, uh, you know the the autonomic nervous system uh, because we're dealing with states that are not fully regulated not fully tolerated um, and they cause us to move toward or away from others Um, and that's what's directing us it's the idea sort of attachment being a blueprint and arousal being the gas the mechanism for for moving toward or away right Mm. engaging disengaging yeah um, and, and so that's kind of uh, fundamental. You know, something very interesting, if you don't mind, um, that can be learned about one's attachment is in meditating. Because uh, if, you're, if you're working with a discipline like uh, Vipassana, where your mind constantly is, is uh, where your attention is focused, let's say, on body sensations, um, and then maybe thoughts that are arising. Maybe you're working with judgments. You know, you're being very judgmental. So I can note, uh, judging, mm-hmm. judging, whenever the thought arises. You start to get a sense of how your mind works, and you may start to get a sense of how uh, how pleasure states. Uh, when you start to relax and let go, but uh, stay attentive, pleasure states, uh, uh, you might notice uh, a need to avoid in that moment, a need to move away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you can catch yourself with some of the uh, uh, attachment concerns, like for waves, it's ending, right? I don't want, uh, I want something to continue, even if it's negative, because if it, if it starts to, uh, to resolve, um, I get anxious because I am afraid of anything ending, um, and that's an attachment concern. Uh, or I'm I'm afraid of enjoying something and getting into it too much and staying without wanting to leave uh, because I'm afraid that if I if I stay there, uh, perhaps something bad will happen. Maybe I'll be disappointed. You have an um, sorry about that sound in the background. <laughs> <That's okay>. uh, <laughs> let me turn my my phone off here. Um, I I may get disappointed. Uh, One of the things uh, I think about uh, meditation practice is dealing with death and dying. And death and dying uh, can also be looked at as moving forward, Uh, moving forward in life uh, instead of finding yourself in concentric circles of worry and concern and preoccupation. Which some of us uh, might discover as a way to avoid moving into the future, uh, and some might say, moving into the future is me closer to death, so therefore I won't do it so so meditation is wonderful for understanding how how you might be operating inside with uh, as you're uh, disciplining yourself to. Uh, to be uh, more equanimous with uh, uh, with uh, expanding and contracting thoughts and feelings and so on, but also notice what your urges are, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. and how that might relate to attachment and in in life in general.
0: Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. And, and can you can you explain this? so the pleasure states? um so you're in meditation you're in a pleasure state or how how, how does that I, I guess i didn't follow how you recognize a pleasure state in meditation and then what comes up around it like how what would that what would that look like
1: well in vipassana you're dealing with pleasure the same way you're dealing with pain you're just you're watching it observing it um uh and letting go right not accepting it as is, not trying to grasp, not trying to hold on to it, just letting it rise and fade. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you can also notice um, uh, what you wish to do. Um, maybe you, you wish to hold on to it, maybe you wish to push it away. Uh, and so uh, maybe uh, you have fears of uh, when you start to feel good that the next thing is that it's going to be gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very wave-like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> as soon as, as I feel something good, it's going to go. Uh, uh, and then, uh, so you, y- you, can start to find, um, uh, after a while because you're getting very granular as you're sitting and watching the smallest thing, uh, you start to notice your reactions to uh, a certain experience mm-hmm. and, and in terms of, uh, of, um, uh, you know, urge and uh, uh, and pressure to do something, mm-hmm. uh, and that can really I th- think uh, teach you a lot about your relationship to life, uh, and into uh, into moving into uh, forward into the unknown, uh, as well as how you deal with uh, with pleasure and uh, pain.
0: Mm-hmm. This seems like a good place to get into uh, mentalizing uh, metacognition, Fonagy, that kind of stuff that George talks about in the, um, in the podcast. What were, what were your impressions, of, um, when he talks about mentalizing?
1: Well, I thought it was interesting cause I, I had not heard it before and, and, and I'm going to now uh, look into that. I th- I found it fascinating. Um, applying Fonagy to mindfulness, um, um, Fonegie's um, uh, reflective function um, has has been centered around the uh, the parental capacity um, to be fully resourced and to be curious about a baby's mind um, and that of course involves theory of mind, the ability to be interested in my own mind and be interested in yours and so uh, so the the ability to uh, to be able to intuit uh, what a, a non-speaking uh, animal <laughs> uh, which a baby is, uh, what the what the baby is experiencing inside what the baby is wanting, what the baby might be thinking and giving words to it uh, may be in some ways uh, a foundational aspect of of uh, differentiating for the baby different states, different in, uh, different internal states, which eventually become emotion, right? Mm-hmm. Motion is is motion is uh, labeled, tagged, identified from the outside from somebody witnessing it, right? Uh, and then it's named and hopefully it's by a, a reliable, person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so reflective functioning, uh, it was considered to be, interestingly enough, considered to be a necessary condition for secure attachment. However, um, in other cultures where they do not do reflective uh, functioning, they do have secure infants. Um, and so th- uh, that may be a Western idea uh, mm-hmm. that reflective functioning, which Alan Shore uh, uh, considers it strictly cognitive, not using the right brain, but uh, uh, the left um, as as a way of of uh, determining what's in another person's mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I happen to disagree, but I, but you know I, I think it is both a left and right thing um, because when we're when we're dealing as therapists and we're entering in uh, into this sort of right brain resonance of of feeling, uh, the non spoken of 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 resonating with the implicit stream between pa- patient and uh, and therapist um, that is a uh, a definite uh, right brain uh, capacity to read the other uh, to get a sense of what 's going on not in, on inside the other intersubjectively by knowing what 's going on inside of you and being able to differentiate the two so so reflective functioning back to that um, th- there is Without using reflective functioning or mind sight, there is something about mindfulness that re- that requires a certain kind of mechanism of watchfulness, of observation, of of developing a witness mind uh, that may or may not be there for some people and or may be underdeveloped. Uh, mm-hmm. But there, but there may truly be people for which uh, this is not possible, hmm. um, because certain brain structures are not uh, working properly. Or, yeah,
2: or,
0: um, that's something that, that George brings up quite a bit in the episode. Is is the kind of pre work that's necessary for certain people in order to be able to be in to be able to um, even sort of think about the ideas of of secure functioning.
1: What do What do you think about that idea? I'd say that once again, I'm sorry. So,
0: so there's a kind of pre-work that you would give, like, for example, um, you know, that that the that the island, um, that they get their juice and they use it, their primary experience is to use it for themselves. Right. They need to do some pre-work in terms of understanding that their first job, that, that like they need to undo that conditioning basically. And that requires kind of, it, it requires a kind of, you don't get to relationship until you do that work. Was, is kind of one of his ideas. Um, does that make sense?
1: It does. Okay, so I, I, I'm sure he's not intending this, and maybe it, it isn't even close to what he's talking about, uh, you know, Cohet's idea of self-object uh, development, that before I can be with a real object, I have to still, uh, I have to repair uh, damage, injury, to uh, to a period of development where I'm uh, internally developing a self-object function of the beginnings of a relationship internally before I can actually do that externally. I don't think that's what he means, but let's say, because only because he said uh, the avoidant, um, but that assumes that it shouldn't be done, hopefully it doesn't, but assumes that it shouldn't be done in a couple setting. That even though uh, we haven't adequately uh, shown people in training how to do this because there's only only so much time in our Level 1 Level 2 trainings to get uh, further into um, some of the deeper work that's necessary with personality disorders or people with unresolved trauma. But this kind of work is best done with another person, and that can be uh, facilitated in meditative states with partners. Uh, partners being able to read each other, uh, this is a sort of a root, this is more ex- expansive extensive than the rudimentary kind that we 're teaching with the beginnings of eye to eye face to face uh, you know uh, um, can the person uh, manage first of all can they track their own uh, uh, experience dispassionately um, while experiencing it? Through noting, right? Um, all of these things, by the way, um, having, the, having the mind like a magnifying glass going around the body from sensation to sensation, wherever your attention is being pulled, and to really focus on it in it's smaller and smaller resolutions, right? Uh, while at the same time relaxing and accepting it as, as is and dispassionately noting it aloud, which you can, you, uh, as soon as I note something as rising or fading or expanding, contracting, or chest, foot, neck, right, that in and of itself is building in that witness state um, that's using Wernicke's area, Broca's area to label it, right? You know, I'm turning in, uh, I'm, I'm basically, uh, the mind is being used in, in its entirety, um, while I'm, I'm not going to sleep. I'm actually awake. I'm actually mm-hmm. uh, in a very wakeful state, relaxed, and and so this builds that that awareness, um, that ability to tolerate uh, what goes on in me, uh, without getting up, moving right. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that is is disciplinary, especially in the area of self regulation. Uh, that's where I think it's best, is mm-hmm. uh, vipassana. Builds the capacity to self-regulate, not just emotion, but uh, but pain in the body, thoughts, impulses, obsessions, all of that. Uh, really, really good for that,
2: mm-hmm. and really
1: good also for for uh, um, making it not special. I'm feeling the pain, not my pain. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm experiencing um, the joy, not just my joy. I'm, I'm experiencing. My uh, the suffering, not just uh, mine, right? Mm -hmm. So I start to understand everybody, which is a platform for compassion as well. Yeah, so 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 all of that is is well and good, but 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 reflective function, um, and Fonagy's work, um, uh, in in terms of, uh, say, what borderline has a hard time doing, right? Uh, Borderline has a hard time with that uh, that um, uh, witness state that can hold and can uh, uh, and allow for um, uh, equanimity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a real problem there. And we can imagine where the problem might lie in the brain, but uh, uh, but it's a real challenge. Same with people who are highly disorganized. Uh, the, the, the way their brain is organized is quite different and the functioning of the brain is quite unique because of their uh, having to adapt in massive ways that makes uh, their developmental trajectory um, unique, right? Mm-hmm. It's not as, it's not as uh, predictable. Um, and so for that, I think, th- let's put it this way, mindfulness practice with a couple can't hurt. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I can't think of, uh, of a way that that could do any damage uh, if it's facilitated properly. Uh, and, uh, you know, and there's so many ways to do this, um, uh, with the self self regulation, teaching them, but then also Mm co-regulation because ultimately that's what we want. We want partners to be able to co-regulate. We don't want to teach them solely how to be, uh, self regulators or auto regulators. And that's the other thing I, I get concerned about with some people, particularly islands, um, is that they 'll often go and be attracted to mindfulness practice as an auto regulatory uh, mm-hmm. endeavor because it doesn 't involve another person
0: yeah let let 's get to this because um you know there's uh, George says a couple times that pact um, doesn 't work with disorganized and I thought you know just I wanted to get your thoughts on that um, uh, so yeah what do you what do you think of that uh,
1: well i i I think it probably makes sense from somebody uh who uh, took Level 1, Level 2, and found that uh, we only uh, touched on disorganized because of all the other curriculum, and so that would make sense. But in actuality, PACT was uh, built from the ground up uh, to work with the most difficult people. And so that means personality disorders and highly disorganized individuals. It was never meant to be simply uh, a, uh, you know, work with um, uh, the average couple, whatever that is, but, mm-hmm. you know, the average neurotic couple. And uh, uh, one reason is that uh, there are far less average neurotic couples out there than, uh, than is statistically known because of false reporting uh, mm-hmm. of uh, diagnoses. But also because um, uh, that is mostly what comes through our door, right? Mostly what comes through our door are people with some uh some disorder of the self uh not simply psychoneurotic uh, uh and or s- uh, some level of uh, unresolved trauma uh, mm-hmm. It's really common and so uh in level three and we're doing this uh, uh building more in level two in terms of working uh more deeply but in level three Uh, the actual work with personality disorders and the actual work with disorganized uh, will be uh, very much part of that curriculum. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, I I think if George saw what we were doing, uh, he would be delighted because uh, Mm -hmm. his interests and my interests seem to be very uh, much aligned. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So uh, yeah, that's a function of just not having enough time. Mm -hmm. but if, if we're dealing with... In, with, the, tra- in the training, you mean? In, there's not enough time in the training in order not to... not enough time, yeah. Not, really enough to, not enough time in the training to teach techniques, to teach um, you know, what PACT is about, to, to do flybys on neurobiology and arousal regulation and so on. Not enough time um, to then also skim over um, these other areas, all of which uh, suffer then a problem of depth. Um, mm-hmm. Too much coverage, not enough, not enough death. That's because we have too much curriculum. Um, but, but this is very much our wheelhouse uh, dealing with disorganized and personality disorders. Uh, it's just cannot be taught in the beginning, especially with people um, who are new to couple therapy. Uh, it's mm-hmm. just too much to expect that people will be competent and go out and do it.
0: I, I'd imagine you like you love the stuff the crossover between attachment and personality, disorder stuff that George was talking about. Did you did you have thoughts about that with in the interview?
1: Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, attachment theory comes out of object relations, and so uh, uh, the only the only difference is that attachment is less intrapsychic. Um, uh, object relations now we get more into uh, intrapsychic. Uh, um, populated worlds, uh, worlds of objects and, and self-representations. Um, and that's where we have to go when working with uh, disorders of the self. We can't use uh, attachment theory. It's, in, it's insufficient. Um, so, you know, in attachment, if you're looking at the, at the different levels, um, sort of the different um, uh, coding areas of insecure, uh, whether it's avoidant or uh, ambivalent, Um, you notice that it starts to get uh, very severe uh, when it gets into the fives, right? So, um, uh, you know, as you get further and further along, you get to the boundary uh, of avoidant or the boundary of angry resistant or anxious ambivalent. uh, You get more similarities in terms of traits of personality disorders, Mm -hmm. perhaps, than you would more towards the center. But even the ishy parts of WAVE, um, share characteristics that we would describe in, in borderline spectrum disorders, spectrum uh, that includes histrionic dependence and so on. Um, and a, as you get more towards the distancing group, uh, you, get, uh, you get definite characteristics of narcissism and antisocial uh, and schizoid, by the way. Um, so, uh, uh, and to be fair, when you go really even further to the uh, on the side of the wave, you could imagine also that you start looping back uh, it's still wave, but it is lower level borderline with high amounts of distancing, not clinging mm-hmm. so here we're getting into uh, you know into an area a uh, theoretical area that is uh, that is uh, wonderful and complex, uh, very erudite and arguable um, mm-hmm. where uh, though, though islands share a lot of the characteristics of narcissistic disorders, they do not qualify as a personality disorder. That uh, d- personality disorder has a definite line that is crossed um, that, uh, that, has to, uh, that has to include looking at their history, that at each period of individuation stress, they had problems uh, adjusting, shifting. Um, they couldn't self activate as, uh, as, as their friends at same age uh, cohorts could. And there would be some problem that would keep them from moving forward, um, drug addiction, uh, uh, stealing, uh, you know, cutting, uh, eating disorder, uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, something would happen at these critical periods of individuation stress that would show that they have a hard time. Um, adjusting to the vicissitudes of life, and that's one uh, key difference. Uh, Another one, of course, is uh, affect uh, regulation issues, especially around negative negative states, uh, poor poor regulation, poor recovery. Uh, uh, Problems, and this is really important, problems in reality perception. Uh, uh, When we cross over to a personality disorder, there are, there are, really fundamental um, problems in cognition and uh, in reality perception and uh, and um, an emotional uh, sense of boundary, uh, self and other. Uh, there are errors that are quite profound, um, such as, uh, uh, I don't remember my parent, you are my parent. Uh, that's called transference acting out. That is very much um what a personality mm. disorder would do, that, yeah. that, that mistake. Um, There's so many um, really uh, dis- strong distinctions between the two that we ought not to say, okay, well, this sounds like a borderline, but it isn't. Uh, it's, it, we have to understand that all the traits that we find in personality disorders are human traits. We all have it. Mm. Um, mm. What amounts to a disorder has to do with how rigid Uh, that system, that structure is, um, and how uh, I cannot function in the world unless I bend uh, my sense of reality in order to adapt. Uh, and again, so that's a whole other uh, podcast. Basically, that,
0: that's really helpful, though. I mean, especially if people listen to the Masterson episode, um, I think this is a nice complement to that because it really it really adds some some structure to it. Um, last minute here, you have areas where you think people should pay close attention, where it really fits with Pact. Anything that you want to kind of add about uh, the
1: George um, interview? I think that uh, even without uh, uh, the the training what my hope uh, has been probably naively is that people would start to understand the principles of what we're doing here psychobiologically in other words we're 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 developmentalists that are looking at infant development uh, and a development of the brain throughout the lifespan which includes attachment but it is not just about attachment Um, and that we're if we understand that we're dealing with a capacity model in terms of what people can and cannot do socially emotionally in interaction with other human beings, and that is the domain of, uh, within which we're working, then if we can extrapolate some of those principles, ideas as we're moving towards secure functioning, the clinician can start to also invent ways of working um, using uh, um, uh, you know, aspects of regulation theory, of dealing with uh, a couple and helping them to co-regulate distress states, co-regulate exciting states. That's gonna be the big one. Um, uh, that right there, I think, takes care of a lot of what we've been talking about, and it might inform uh, uh, clinicians who are um, uh, learning from Peter Levine and Pat Ogden and so on, um, mm. how to, to use uh, this very same principles that, um, and how to adapt them um, uh, to the uh, getting a couple towards secure functioning. How do we work with the subset of individuals that are stru- struggling with this particular issue? How do we uh, how do we fashion uh, a way of working that will best facilitate them towards secure functioning, and that's mindfulness. That's um, that's working uh, uh, with uh, psychodrama. That's working uh, uh, with bodies in motion, touching, moving toward at glacial speeds, while uh, while investigating every thought, every feeling, every impulse, every urge, every perception. Um, as long as we understand how the mind works and how we're working with people to regulate and to grieve and to move development forward to self-activate, we should be able to use all tools that are available to us um, uh, that work uh, and, and bring them into pact under, under the, uh, the idea that our main goal is secure functioning.
0: That's very exciting. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really cool vision. And I'll just, I'll add that in the in the um, George Haas interview, his talk about exploration and how different people explore, um, I think, really ties in just sort of very practically of like just watching how do the people in front of you explore the ideas, the, their partner, uh, their distressed states. What happens to them? I think the idea of exploration is really was really helpful in the episode for me.
1: What we want, Jason, in Pact is we we want to continue to grow. We don't want to stay static. Uh, Pact is uh, is a system that is constantly growing. Anything we find that works, and if let's say it works in the working with individuals like EMDR, um, we want to retrofit that into couples work into a way that makes sense in couples work. Uh, and moved uh, also into the ethic of secure functioning. Um, This way we're constantly growing and we're constantly um, uh, adding new ways of working and thinking uh, to PAC because we want what is going to work best, not what and not stick to a certain brand or an idea of what Mm -hmm. we should be doing, right? I think secure functioning, everybody agrees with that that is the only thing that's gonna work uh, in the long run with human beings, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The rest of it is now uh, enforcing it and how we're gonna help people along the the path. And so the more we learn as therapists, it's not for the couple. The more we grow as therapists and and add to our fund of knowledge, the more fun this work is and the better our patients uh, are. That's well, great!
0: Thank you so much, Stan. Love talking to you on these episodes, and I again appreciate the time.
1: Thank you, and thank you for your work, Jason.
0: You're welcome. All right. Um. So before we get started, just thank you for thanks for agreeing to meet with me today, and um, yeah, absolutely,
3: yeah, it's good. To, huge fan of Stan.
0: Yeah. How, how do you, how do you know Stan?
3: Um. We were looking. For um, somebody who had done attachment-oriented couples work, so that we could incorporate it in our psychoeducation program, mm-hmm. and so uh, his name came up, and then I read uh, his books um, that were there were two out at that time, and, and then I called him up and I said, uh, "I'm I have a training uh, for meditation facilitators uh, on." Uh, working with uh, attachment repair using meditation as the modality and i asked him if he would come and lecture the the, the cohort which he did mm, very great. generously and oh great it was really eye-opening and as a result of that i went and did his level one and level two trainings
0: oh okay oh great cool okay i'm gonna start recording here oh and the other thing is that this is i, I already started recording the, th- the other thing is that we are not, um, this is all audio. So if you do anything with your hands, if you demonstrate anything with your hands, please.
3: I'm not Italian, I'm Irish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well,
0: well, you know, sometimes people will do these elaborate sort of, sort of therapy oh, kind, of, kind of things and then it doesn't quite translate. translate. Because, exactly, all right. Okay. Um, so welcome George Haas to the Human Nurture Podcast um today we're going to be talking about meditation and uh why uh i why i chose george to talk to is because he's got a real deep understanding of both meditation and attachment and um and i actually got to you george um through uh shinzhen young um oh. and i listened to one of his podcasts i know that he that that shinzhen young and stan studied together um and then um and i i got in touch with shinzhen young's People and they said, you know, you should really talk to George Haas because he's got this, he's got this attachment and meditation thing going mm-hmm. on. So, um, so that that's how I got to you. And I was hoping that's just a way to sort of lead in with a little bit of of kind of your background and uh, and uh, talking a little bit about who you are, which I'd appreciate hearing.
3: Well, you know, I'm a a long-time student of Shinzhen's, maybe 25 years or something like that, and uh, one of the things that he asks all of his uh, students to do once they get to a certain level is to start teaching. Um, And so I started to teach, and um, he does a, a kind of, I think that he would probably call it mindfulness or Vipassana-based practice, he's completely secularized the way that he teaches. But when you really uh, look at it from the Buddhist perspective of lineages, he's a kind of mashup of the three main lineages. He teaches Theravada, he teaches Zen, he teaches vajrayana the Tibetan approach, and it's all sort of mixed up together. Um, and uh, because it is a deep practice, when I was teaching out into the communities that I went into, they didn't have the basic skill level to be able to um, do the techniques uh, so that he's a retreat teacher and you come on his retreat and because of the retreat environment, it's intense enough that it can hold you while you develop the capacity to do the techniques and that that way of exploring meditation. But in um, practices of people that are mainly householders that don't go on retreats, they couldn't really do the techniques. So rather than teaching a straight Shinzen approach, I needed to modify it so that it would be more usable to the people that were coming to my classes.
2: Mm.
3: And so I started to teach. And uh, what happened uh, is that uh, somebody came up to me and said, you used to be one of the angriest people I'd ever met, and now you're not angry anymore. Huh. How did you do it, and can you teach me how? And so I started, to, I started a class called Overcoming Anger and then um, after that class was over, people came up to me and said, you know, anger isn't really my issue. My issue is fear. Can you teach a class on fear? So then I taught a class on overcoming fear, and then people came up to me and said, you know, anger and fear are not really my issues. Sadness is my issue. Could you Uh teach a class on sadness? And so I taught a class on sadness, and then somebody came up to me and said, you know, anger, fear, and sadness aren't really my issue. My issue is shame. Can you teach a class on shame? And then I wised up, and I started teaching a class called Overcoming Difficult Emotions. Ah. And then people came up to me and said, you know, it really isn't the difficult emotions that are a problem. It's the relationships that cause the problems, that cause the emotional reaction that I need to be able to deal with better. And I was at that time uh, looking into my own attachment disturbances and trying to find a place to repair them. And I recognized immediately from uh, what was being described to me, that what was really being talked about was this attachment disturbance that caused difficulty in relationships, and that that's what people really wanted help with. Huh. And so then I, I started to teach a class called what, The Meaningful Life and, um, and uh, use various meditation techniques that I had developed for myself to help deal with emotional regulation and the difficulty of, of, intimacy, uh, in a, in a structured way that people could learn them. And it, uh, turned out that the insights that you can get from exploring, you know, emotional regulation and, uh, self-generated emotion. I, uh, what is a self-generated emotion is a term that I use, but, uh,
0: Self-activation. So, uh, we, we would yeah. say self-activation. Uh-huh.
3: Yeah, that's it. And mm-hmm. how do you then address it? Um, what you notice when you look at attachment, of course, is that secure people mentalize really well or have a capacity for met- metacognition. And they're pretty organized and, and intimacy isn't an issue for them. But as you move into disorganized, uh, if you move into insecure attachment, while still organized or into disorganized attachment, the capacity to mentalize goes down. So dismissing people, say, uh, are the next best to secure in terms of how well they can mentalize and then preoccupy people. But once you get into disorganization in, in attachment, then people don't mentalize very well and they can't really understand the dynamics of what's happening in the relationship in the moment that it's happening because they can't think about it clearly. And so we recognized early in the work that we were doing that we needed to teach mentalizing as one of the skills, in addition to attachment, which which meditation is really good at doing, and then the emotional regulation piece, and then that could get people into, uh, Uh, at least being willing to try relationships again. Mm. Um, I know in Stan's work, of course, he's mostly working with the other end of the attachment spectrum, the organized attachment people and secure couples with difficulties or uh, dismissing and preoccupied couples that need to negotiate a a sense of justice or fairness in the relationship. But uh, in in a large section of the population I have, the disorganized one, which is who I mostly work with. They don't really mm. have functioning relationships at all. And so you have to do the, the homework or the, the foundation building stuff so that they can get to a place where they're even willing to try again to be in relationships. Huh. Because by the time you get into your 30s or 40s, if you have disorganized attachment, you've tried and failed so many times to, to make a relationship function in a good way that you begin to uh, be unwilling to tolerate the disappointment that arises from trying again.
2: Mm.
3: And Mm -hmm. so a lot of the stuff that we do since I would say 60 or 70% of the people that come to work with us have disorganized attachment, which is probably quite different from the typical packed uh, uh,
0: group. Hmm. Yeah, that's, it's interesting having listened to a bunch, I've been doing this deep dive into your podcasts, which are, I think are really great. I mean, you know, the, the, well, I mean, just that the first part is that, um, that it's, it's good context to have that most of the people that you're working with 60 to 70% fall into the disorganized attachment. Category because it helps sort of give me more of a sense of where your vantage point starts from that So that's very Mm -hmm. helpful Um, what I really found so lovely about your podcast is you know, I mean Attachment and mindfulness are two things as a therapist that you hear a lot about and I think to the point where you don't they kind of begin to lose their meaning or you've kind of begin to not know what you know and what you don't know anymore about it. And right. I had the experience while listening to your podcast of, of feeling like I was learning things new again, which was really mm-hmm. quite exciting to me. So oh, good. Um, and um, and I want to, I, I, I'm hoping to give people sort of a groundwork, a sense of that. I think we already, we're already getting to some of that when you talked about mentalizing and helping people to mentalize. Um, I, um, so just starting from there, can you talk a little bit about what is the process of helping people to begin to build a capacity for mentalizing? What does that look like?
3: Well, um, the Buddha used the metaphor of a rushing river. And if you get caught up in his thought stream, it's as if you're pulled off the bank of the river and into the rapids. And it's very hard and disorienting to try and make sense of even where the body is positioned when you're being thrust down this forceful flow of consciousness. But if you're able to stand on the bank and watch the river go by, you can really make much greater sense of the currents that are happening because you're not being overwhelmed by them. So in some sense, mentalizing is this capacity to step out of the identification with the stream of consciousness and to observe it uh, from a vantage point of, we would call that awareness. Mm -hmm. I talk about this uh, in two segments. One is the early mentalizing that you would develop in the dyadic relationship with your primary caregiver. So if you had good enough care, you would have learned to do this in the, we use a reflective functioning scoring in the AAIs, uh, AAIs and adult attachment, mm-hmm. which, which we use for an assessment tool. Um, to secure people tend to mentalize at a six or higher on a nine scale.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And then you're looking at dismissing people who are in the four to five range, uh, preoccupied people in the three to four range and disorganized people in the two to three range. And it's an exponential scale. So that somebody who's mentalizing at at a three is mentalizing at twice the capacity of somebody at a two. And Mm. once you get up to six, it's quite a dramatic difference in how well they're able to understand what's happening. Wow! So we use the Fonagy-Bateman scale to describe it to students. And he has uh, four dimensions of active mentalizing. One is uh, control versus spontaneity. One is self versus other one is internal versus external and one is cognitive versus effective and we use these as objects of meditation and we ask the students to note them uh, in in a meditation practice so that they can begin to sensitize themselves to these these uh, activations using one of those scales say the the control versus spontaneity we ask them to watch the flow of of their mind without interfering with the flow of the mind, but at the same time monitoring the flow of the mind and instruct them that if they get too uh, much in the controlled side of things, the activation of the mind stops Mm -hmm. and the mind quiets down because they're interfering with the flow. Mm -hmm. And if they get pulled into the spontaneity too much, they lose the monitoring and so that they can see that, uh, they're no longer meditating they're caught up in the, in the thought stream mm-hmm. and so that we can teach them then to not interfere with the flow of experience and at the same time monitor it and that's developing one dimension of mentalizing mm-hmm. we can also teach them to separate cognitive function from affective or emotional function by making them two different objects of meditation mm-hmm. one is uh, uh, auditory thinking and visual thinking, and then one is the felt sense of the body that's emotional in nature. And they're even in different geographical locations, which makes that monitoring pretty simple. And so we simply let their attention be drawn to whatever, whatever their attention goes to, and then we ask them to note it, to know where their attention is, to soak into the sensing experience of it, and then to generate the label that corresponds with where it is. And in this process of doing that, which is a pretty simple thing, and most people can pick it up pretty quickly, they begin to be able to monitor their internal experience or external experience in a completely different way and, and see the pieces of it happening.
2: Mm-hmm. And, uh,
3: and then you can build from there to a more complex way that they they create, um, we would call them in Buddhism, views. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, In Buddhism, we talk about uh, ultimate reality and conceptual reality. So in ultimate reality, it's just the pure sensing experience. So the touch aspect, the sight aspect, hearing, tasting, smelling. Mm -hmm. We talk about mind, which is where your attention goes. And then you use those moments of sensing to create what you think is happening. Mm -hmm. So we have a way of practicing that this is what you're sensing and this is what you've made it into is what you've made it into an accurate reflection of what the sensing experience was or has your conditioning created a conceptual reality that isn't really based any longer on the sensing experience
0: uh-huh uh-huh and and uh, just just as i visualize this you're doing this with a group in in a in a meditations studio where where does this happen what does it what's it look like
3: well, we teach in five levels. Our okay. course is now called Meditation and Attachment. Uh, we actually use Stan's material quite heavily in the in a course we call Meditation and Attachment for Relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the in the level one, it's purely a psychoeducation and meditation training, and that happens just in a classroom with uh, you know support of uh, recorded guided meditation. And then in level two, we add uh, Dan Brown's Ideal Parent Figure Protocol. Dan is a, he teaches at Harvard in the psychiatric department, but he's also a a lineage holder in the Tibetan, Hmm. a tradition. He's in the Mm -hmm. Vimei lineage. Uh, And he and his group uh, out there have developed what's called the Ideal Parent Figure Protocol, which is based on the, the Tibetan Mahamudra practice Uh, where you visualize ideal attachment uh, parenting as a way of supplanting the probably less than perfect attachment parenting that you did have.
2: Mm, Okay.
3: Uh, This is uh, particularly effective for disorganized people who don't really have references into into understanding how secure relationships function. So the first level is uh, six months long. You meet twice a month and have the education on basic attachment and basic meditation training. Level two is uh, a, a, a class, a two hour class every other week for six months, but it has uh, one-on-one meditation mentoring with me or one of the people that work with me and that we, we go over and make sure that you can do the meditation techniques the way that they're designed to be done. And also that you're, Beginning to be able to integrate the ideal parent figure protocol. And then level three is the ideal parent figure uh, focused mainly on uh, attachment repair. And then uh, that's two hour-long uh, individual sessions a month. And then we have a, a one process group per month for that level. Mm. And then level four is where we begin to look at. We call them fixed views in Buddhism, and in uh, Western psychology, they're called schemas. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a Jeffrey uh, Young is a guy uh, who's based in New York, who's part of the attachment group that has developed a thing called schema therapy. We don't actually we're meditation mm-hmm. teachers and so we don't actually do therapy in that sense and and uh, even though some of us are licensed the stuff that we do is all meditation based so we're not doing traditional therapy in that sense but we do like to have these lists of things buddhism has a lot of lists so we really mm-hmm. we're we're drawn to lists and uh, we really like the list of uh, schemas that he has or fixed views we would call them as, as, and, and he has a, a self-inquiry uh, uh, questionnaire that you can fill out that, that gives you a sense of what those views are and then we can begin once the uh, uh, attachment activations uh, begin to settle to move into the, the more uh, uh, fixed way that you view yourself or view others if you think of uh, attachment as a description of a working model of Of your own capacities and you think of uh, it as a working model of what you can expect other people to bring to you, Mm -hmm. then what you need to begin to do in order to repair that is to begin to understand what the working model is that you have and then what changes need to be made to it so that you can move into a more secure functioning. And then also what you can expect from other people and to change your Uh, Idea about what other people are going to be able to to bring to a collaborative relationship Yeah,
0: and can you can you talk about the fixed views? I think I'm using the words right here the fixed views of a Preoccupied attachment and the fixed views of a dismissive attachment and and particularly the way the way that I heard you set it up that I really liked was I walk into a room and I have a dismissive attachment and this is the way the world looks
3: So if you look at secure people, they think of themselves as capable of getting their needs met, and they think of the rest of the world as being open to meeting their needs in a collaborative relationship. If you think of a dismissing person, they think that they're the best thing since sliced bread and they like to get themselves into a position of power so that they don't have to collaborate because uh, they don't, they don't really. So, a dismissing person walks into the room and thinks, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread, and I would be in a collaborative collaborative relationship with you if you actually were up to collaborating at my level. But since you're obviously not, I'm just going to take from you what I want. Mm-hmm. A preoccupied person walks into the room and thinks, um, I can't take care of myself. I'm helpless, but if I can get somebody to take care of me, then my needs can be met. Mm-hmm. And so they tend to look around the room for people that have higher social position and try to become the thing that they that person wants them to be so that that person will, will take care of them and they'll get their needs met that way. Mm-hmm. And if you look at a disorganized person, they think that they're incapable of getting their needs met, but they also think that the rest of the world is, is um, uh, dangerous and potentially harmful to them. Mm-hmm. So they don't even want to ask people to meet their needs because they're afraid that if they do, they'll invite uh, harm into their their life. Mm-hmm. If you look at that particular constellation, it, disorganized attachment comes from uh, abuse or uh, sexual abuse, prolonged, mm-hmm. uh, and so that it, it makes perfect sense that they would view other people coming to them as potentially harmful. Mm -hmm. Secure people get their needs met good enough. Dismissing people have their attachment needs rejected so consistently that they give up on collaborative relationships. It isn't that they give up on getting their needs met. It's just they give up on collaborating.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, you know your your definition of dismissive. Would you? I mean, you've done level one and two with Stan, and so would you say? Does your dismissive fall? Is it the same as an island? It is. Okay. And the dismissive. I mean, I. I, I it's actually been really interesting tracking couples with um with you in my mind, and I'm really beginning. I mean, I really have just been listening, um, hearing so much more of the dismissiveness in the island. Mm-hmm. It's really. Sort of peaked my ear to that, but I, uh, my definition of a, of an island was was um, it, it it feels so much more narcissistic the um, the way that you describe than than what was my understanding of the island and um and I and you know I mean what do you do you have any thoughts on that about where that confusion might have might have come in my mind.
3: Well, if you we look at the Masterson scale, at one end is uh, antisocial personality disorder, and at the other end it's borderline,
2: and mm-hmm.
3: it's all narcissism.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And so, depending on the cluster of it, we like to we call it cluster Bs in the treatment world, uh, what traits they pull up. Um, mm-hmm. uh, in traditional attachment stuff, they don't lay out exactly. So that the, the narcissism scale and the attachment scale don't really meet um, there's approximate rather than act a real definitive. But you would say a narcissistic personality disorder would be a uh, dismissing uh, person.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, um, there are 19 subcategories of, of attachment that you can detect with the uh, adult attachment interview. And it isn't uh, necessarily true that you're one thing. Mm. You could be uh, in organized attachment, have uh, multiple uh, assets. For instance, I work with somebody who's E3, E1, E2. So Mm. she's helplessly preoccupied, she's passively preoccupied, and she's angrily preoccupied. And that attachment activation is dependent on the conditions in the present moment so that you can see quite a bit of varied response in terms of attachment from the same person, depending on what the the context is in which the attachment uh, activates. Mm -hmm. And if you get into, um, you know, you have the grandiose uh, um, dismissing person, you have, the kind of angrily de- derogating dismissing person, the mm-hmm. um, kind of passive uh, dismissing person. So depending on what it is yeah. and how they manifest, um, what's useful, I think, in terms of the way that Stan uh, characterizes it is that uh, dismissing people are avoidant in their, in their nature
2: mm-hmm. in terms
3: of that. Um, and they like to be pursued and they don't like to have to reciprocate and they like to, to have an inflated sense of themselves.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, in the wave, um, in in organized uh, attachment, uh, a wave would be described as helplessly preoccupied. So they present themselves as helpless in order to get your attention.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And then they make sure that the problem uh, that they present to you is unsolvable because if you were able to solve the problem for them, the need for connection would be relieved and they're not interested in the problem, they're interested in the connection.
2: Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm.
3: very inauthentic. Right. So, and, and, uh, but if you move beyond that into the more disorganized area, that helpless preoccupation is not helpless, it's angry and demanding yeah. and uh, critical and, uh, and almost uh, threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, one of the things that that i think w- works better in in terms of uh, the pack stuff is it really is about uh, design more at least in my view for people that are in the organized end of uh, attachment disturbances or attachment settlement i mean organized attachment versus disorganized attachment organized attachment isn't really uh, pathological in that sense and people who are in that group seem to do about as well as everybody else there isn't a big difference in the way that they function in the world but once you get into disorganized attachments like falling off a cliff they don't Mm. function very well at all and i think one of the reasons why uh in our uh health system, you don't see a lot of people who are disorganized because they don't function very well and they don't have very many resources. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in our culture where there's no mental health parity and most people are having to fund their mental health services through their own resources, people who don't have resources can't come.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think about that a lot in terms of just the bar to entry to get into couples therapy is so high, you know, I mean, right. you know, in order to pay for it and in order to be organized enough to make a weekly schedule around somebody's, you know, the two hours that, that they have available or the hour and a half that they have available. I mean, that's a big bar of entry. And right. and if you're talking about, if we're talking about structure of people's lives, for a lot of people, it's very difficult to get, you know, for, to, to maintain uh, um, that kind of structure. Um, and, and a lot of that has, I mean, you know, I like the way that you talk about, like, you know, the, how much of this is the legacy of what you have gotten from your grandparents, from your parents and from their grandparents. And so we're talking about not only a slice, a slice that has had privilege and kind of resources um, for probably a long, pretty long time throughout their, right. throughout their history.
3: Yeah. And have done well enough in the world
0: right yeah said simply yeah i like that i like that um and you know i was as i was thinking about today i was thinking about you know you've got you've got buddhism that's thousands of years old and you've got attachment theory that's like less than a hundred years old right um what's that like to be to have your feet in two different areas that are that have (laughs) such different history
3: neither area is welcoming of the other (laughs) meaning meaning what i'm very curious what do you mean Uh, the the Buddhist, traditional Buddhist side is really not open to Western psychology. They don't want it. And the Western psychology side doesn't really understand meditation very well. And so they're also suspicious of it. Huh. Uh, uh, but the Western psychology side is very suspicious of a uh, an approach that's meditation-based and community-based rather than on the, the dyadic relationship uh, between therapist and, and client, hmm.
2: um,
3: and uh, and in the West, of course, um, meditation practice is uh, uh, we we use it's a pejorative term, but I'll still use it. Light,
2: mm-hmm.
3: so mindfulness is the thing that swept everything. And when you look at mindfulness, it's it is moderately good at. Um, stress reduction, but stress uh, a moderately good approach at stress reduction is not going to make a dent in attachment conditioning. Mm. And so um, you need to uh, have, move into an area where you're willing to do deep practice because you have to be able to get into the experiences uh, of that early attachment conditioning. Children do not give up, uh, you know, if you've taken a dismissing adult, children do not give up on trying to get their attachment needs because the experience of getting their attachment needs was okay. Mm -hmm. They give up on it because it was awful. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Uh, And you touch into a dismissing person, and what you're touching into is a terrible sadness that every attempt that they made as a child to try and get their attachment needs met was rejected, mm-hmm. coldly or hotly rejected but nonetheless they gave up on trying to get their attachment needs because they couldn't figure out any possible way of getting that to happen which meant in some sense that they gave up on everybody
2: mm-hmm.
3: and for, for a dismissing person to risk being vulnerable means they risk plunging into the terrible sadness of a childhood of utter rejection mm-hmm. and so for most of them they can't do it because they don't have the resources internally to tolerate that intensity of sadness and so they create this sort of inflated sense of self which primary purpose is to keep you away from the sadness
2: mm-hmm. and they're
3: constantly in the need of uh, i like to call it juice but you know, s- psychic resources in order to keep themselves inflated because the penalty for them is if they deflate, they plunge into this pool of terrible sadness that they have been running from headlong since they were, uh, since their first memory, really.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, you look at the childhood of, a, of somebody who grows up to be preoccupied and their care was inconsistent. Uh, Sometimes they were neglected. Sometimes the care was good. Sometimes the care was intrusive. Often what you uh, hear in those childhoods is that they were role reversed. As soon as they were cognitively able, you know, usually around six years old or so, they realized that if they were going to get any kind of access to the adult world and any kind of care that could come from them, they had to take care of their caregiver in order to get them to interface with the world. And their responsibility was taking care of this uh, incompetent caregiver. And, uh, and the consequence of that, of course, is a complete abandonment of the sense of self and the sense of their own exploration. Mm-hmm. You look at this, they're so tied together, this uh, attachment uh, and the capacity to explore what's meaningful.
2: Mm-hmm
3: preoccupied people give up their exploration in order to take care of the other person uh, and that's their conditioning and that they expect from that other person that the, the the sorrow of not exploring will be compensated for it's one of the reasons why they're so angry often and so critical is that they do all of this stuff which really is meant to compensate them for their uh, loss of exploration. And then when it isn't compensatory, they get enraged by it. Mm-hmm. Did so you say there's... that
0: again, that, that part, I, I mean, cause I, I've just, I just had the experience recently. I just, an hour ahead before this of somebody getting very enraged at me for saying, you know, like for, for asking them to reflect on the process of, of how much they're putting into figuring out the other person. Right. And their partner, you know, you are really invested in figuring this out and what's that like? And, um, and, and so can you talk about, and then the anger that spikes from that, can Can you talk a little bit more about that?
3: Um, one of the things that's, um, happens to uh, people who grow up to be preoccupied is that in childhood, their conditioning was such that they had to abandon their capacity to explore. Mm-hmm in order to take care of their caregiver. So one of the things that can happen is um, that in in the process of repairing this and moving towards security, they need to begin to explore. Mm. So two things. One is they're enraged that they had to abandon their exploration as a child. And the second is they don't know how to do it. So if you were to ask, and they're very sensitive to social uh, status, if you were to put a preoccupied person on the spot and ask them to explore, they wouldn't be able to do it and they would be afraid that that would be revealed and that they would lose social status and that could erupt into a huge expression of anger, which is really meant to deflect you from the fact that they can't explored Mm, mm.
0: yeah that's really
2: helpful
3: (laughs) so you're seeing that my mantra for preoccupied people is you're not helpless what are you going to do
0: uh-huh
3: to see if you can get them to try and do it and one of the things that i like uh one of the things that was apparent for instance when we were first doing the, the the training was we, we were really good at helping dismissing people. We were really good at helping disorganized people. Secure people didn't come. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we weren't helpful at all with preoccupied people. Okay. And the reason for that was it was too difficult to reliably tell when they were being authentic and when they were being inauthentic.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And they would present inauthentically, and we would accept that as authentic, and then we would attempt to address it what we didn't realize is nothing that they had presented inauthentically had any real meaning to them so mm. that all of the interventions we tried didn't do anything.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And the exploration piece is really important in, in understanding how they present because if you ask them to genuinely explore and you don't tell them how to do it, they can't fake it. Mm. Then you then you have to provide the support for them so that they can tolerate not knowing what to do Mm -hmm. and uh, reassuring them that there's no loss in social status because they don't know what to do. Their conditioning would suggest that they don't know what to do. And this is that uh, unfortunate part where they have to learn to explore before they can explore what has meaning to them.
0: Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, this gets me, I get stuck around this a lot in terms of, um, you know, cause if you, if you go down, you know, you're, you're familiar with the language of PAC. So if you go down the middle often, right. or if you say, you know, Hey, you know, you guys are in each other's care. And so, you know, begin to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making this more simple than it actually is, but begin to co-regulate together right. and the preoccupied person Will look like they're doing it, right? I mean, they'll look like they're, you know, they'll they'll be making the eye contact and they'll be doing it, and then, you know, but then oftentimes they pull out of it, and you get a strong sense either from their verbal, um, you know, what they tell you or what you see that it hasn't been a real exploration, that it's really right. been just I've just sort of been holding this because you've been telling me to hold it, and now can we get to the good part, which is where I get what I want?
3: <laughs> yeah, I right? like that.
0: And
3: what so do you the, mean? Do you want me to be authentic? Exactly. What does? What is it that you mean? I'll do that. Right?
0: Okay. And so this is. And I am <laughs> and, and I. And and so so the turn. So the turn that I've been thinking quite a bit about is is a turn towards mindfulness mm-hmm. here. And so what? How? How would? Where does mindfulness now fit in? Fill in some of this um, helping people to explore authentically.
3: Well, one thing to do is to. Um, sit with them and have them vocally label so that they can't pretend that they're meditating and they can't pretend that they're doing the technique correctly. If you don't actually have them verbally label out loud then you don't know what they're actually doing and most of the time they're faking it. Uh But if you you put them in a position where they can't fake it then uh, and then they may begin to try and actually do it, um, and we also use the ideal parent figure protocol a lot for that because you can't fake the exploration in the in the ideal parent figure protocol.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I'll have um, to look that up. I don't know anything about it actually. And I, I, I hadn't I hadn't even I hadn't heard of Dan Brown. You know, of course, I thought about the the famous author, but I hadn't yes. heard of him. I
3: picked <laughs> up the Da Vinci Code, and then they're all better. <laughs> that, that,
0: <laughs> that was that was my experience too. I mean. The... <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: uh, no Daniel
3: but I, P Brown
0: Daniel P said. Brown okay so i'm going to look up Daniel P Brown and um and um so i'm sorry i interrupted you but but keep but keep going on these on 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 uh, uh, well one, one, one thing i'd be curious about certainly finish your thought and then the second piece is what does it mean to sort of moment to moment name the experience what what is what does that look like
3: so if we uh, did a simple see here, field technique Mm-hmm. And and it's we're just dividing sensory experience into visual experience, auditory experience, and the felt sense of the body. So internal visual thinking, internal auditory thinking, or external sound, and the body. So I'll do a little bit for you right now. We're naming only one activation at a time, even though there might be multiple ones. Then I would be going uh, feel, 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 see, hear, see. Is that Mm -hmm. making sense?
0: That makes, yeah, that does make sense. It reminds me of um, in the um, Wired for Love retreats when you're watching your partners. You're, you know, you tap your partner's, you tap your thigh every time your partner's face makes any kind of movement, right. um, and it brings people into the present moment of just of just beginning to really observe in real time their partner's
3: experience, and, right? And monitor them. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the attunement piece is really big.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: If you so secure people know how to explore. Because they've always been encouraged to explore and they know how to share the experience of their exploration, and that becomes one of the vital dialogues of the relationship. I went out and did this today. This is what I found out. It's so interesting. What do you think? And then the other person does the same, and you share this information, and each of you has to do half the exploration because you have an intimate uh, recounting of the other person's exploration. And if you travel closely enough together, it really sort of uh, enlivens the relationship and uh, brings you closer. Um, we learn to do that as children, of course. You know, the two year old that runs off and picks up a broken piece of something and then runs back and presents it to you. And what you need to do then is light up with delight that they're doing that and take it and have a dialogue with them about it and then hand it back to them. Uh, so that they can own and understand that their exploration has interest and meaning and it's something that you're interested in and delighted in. Of course, secure children have that experience over and over again, and so they just do it. You don't Mm -hmm. have to tell them to do it. Dismissing adults explore, but they tend to do a kind of pseudo-exploration. They explore things that have high social value and that gives them power in relationships so they don't have to collaborate Mm -hmm. that's the that's the purpose of their exploration so whereas a secure person has a primary motive to to explore what's interesting to them a dismissing person typically explores something that gives them the secondary advantage that they want which is not to, to Uh, collaborated relationships
0: Mm -hmm. and that's the juice you're talking about i get that juice is it yeah i get the
3: psychic supplies from you to keep myself Uh inflated so i don't collapse into the terrible sadness yeah um so you don't have to teach a dismissing person to explore you have Uh to teach them to explore for a primary gain that's interesting in the exploration of itself and to abandon the secondary gain that would keep them from needing to collaborate in a relationship by teaching them to collaborate in the relationship, which is what the PAC stuff does so brilliantly.
0: Oh, that's so cool. PAC, of course,
3: accepts the conditions of the relationship and isn't attempting an attachment repair in the same way that we focus on in the disorganized group, because you don't really need to do it Mm. unless people want to. They function well enough and they can make a collaborative relationship work with the native attachment intact. Um, whereas this disorganized people can't, uh, uh-huh. uh,
2: uh,
0: the, uh, you know, one thing just, um, listening to your podcast, um, is just to, just to sit with couples and just notice what their exploration is like, right? It, really? I mean, I, you know, it just seems so obvious uh, because exploration is something that we, that you know that we know is part of attachment, and like you describe, the two-year-old who brings back and and how the you know the multiple times that happens builds the sense of of attachment. Um, but just to watch as couples either try to explore in the room or either de- or describe what the exploration process is like for them, uh, right. really really changes how you how you hear things. It's really really a great mm-hmm. a great way to think of things um another area that I really liked to um when when you talk about is is from the um from the neurobiological perspective and right. the stress that um that these that that uh the insecure attachment or the or or the um the insecure attachment the kind of stress that it creates in the system and then the the need for the system to kind of filter that um that experience through, you know, you, you, you described like, you know, the two-year-old temper temper tantrum. Right. And then what it takes for the two-year-old to process all of that, that sort of neurochemical mixture. Can you talk a little bit about that, that, that that sort of what, what that's like internally for people?
3: Um, In organized attachment, um, you have, you know, that you have these uh, human babies, uh, are born quite premature in comparison, say to the other animals or the great ape. a great ape is born with the capacity of an eighteen month old human baby mm. in terms of strength and dexterity. Um, you know human babies can't even really see when they're born, and then they get a like a six inch depth of vision
2: mm.
3: that's why the the mother's face or the father's face has to be six inches away for the baby to be able to register it their right brain is. Well, the brainstem is intact, the midbrain is partially formed, the prefrontal cortexes are not formed particularly. The right one grows first, which is procedural memory, and then the left one comes after that. And so you have these developmental periods uh, in in terms of what capacities are of ranges. But What's most interesting, I think, is that the human brain develops in direct relationship to the environment that it's in so that these attachment conditionings that children experience actually affect the physical structure of their brain. And then you have this brain that is developed to function in one particular attachment strategy or another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And even if you repair the attachment, you don't get a new brain, you get... Uh, you know, if we can use a computer model, new software to run the old hardware Mm -hmm. in a way. But so a earned secure brain is not the same brain as a secure brain. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do uh, say this quite often is secure people have a much easier time than insecure people. Organized attachment people have a much easier time than disorganized. So if you need motivation to understand why you would want to do it, it is so much easier to be, Securely attached than it is to not be securely attached. That once you get there, you, you can see immediately the benefit of that. It is mm-hmm. hugely different for people who are securely attached from people who aren't, and just such a titanic difference between organized and disorganized attachment. And I I do sometimes get flack for saying that, but we do be, we are beginning to have these uh, capacities to change this and that you can spend three or four years doing intense work to change your underlying attachment strategy, and then the whole rest of your life will be much easier. It's mm. really worth considering doing this. With the packed stuff, to be able to negotiate a collaborative relationship makes the capacity to explore things that are meaningful to you so much easier that you're really looking at this choice between, do I have a meaningful, rich life that resulted from doing this intense effort, or do I continue to live in the despair of not finding enough meaning in my life? And if you look at our culture, we're in an epidemic of that kind of despair. So it's totally worth doing. But you're going to have the brain that you have. Mm-hmm. Secure people, there's a marvelous integration between the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system, and they tend to balance each other. The sympathetic goes off with alarm and the hippocampus evaluates whether it's real or not, and if it's not, it shuts down the activation, and if it is, it amps up the the capacity to respond. uh, Dismissing people have a hypoactivating sympathetic nervous system; they don't respond. That's why they seem flat. And they have a hyperactivating parasympathetic nervous system. And so, what they tend to do is, in a in a moment where something is uh, challenging or difficult, they shut off their emotions altogether and they go totally cognitive.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So they're very cold. Mm. The experience is often that they're quite cold, but what really is happening is that their conditioning resulted in having to suppress their emotional awareness because the rejection was so debilitating. And often they were in a position of having to idealize their caregivers in order to get any response from them, and that meant that they needed to be cognitively functioning. Mm -hmm. So that's what happens to them. Preoccupied people, on the other hand, they tend to be hyper-sympathetic, so they really react fast and they're hypo-parasympathetic. So they don't settle. Mm. So they they go off like fireworks and then that's a very slow process for them to settle because the, the parasympathetic or balancing agent doesn't engage. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very predictable. If you're in relationship with somebody who's got strong preoccupation, they alarm fast and they're slow to settle and they need physical attention in order for that to happen. Dismissing people just get cold, and so you you need some way to turn on their emotional system again. With disorganized people, it can be any of that. They can hyperactivate sympathetically, hypoactivate sympathetically, hyperactivate parasympathetically, hypoactivate parasympathetically, and they can do it at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, wow. and and the and and every time that you go out of the window of tolerance in any, you know Whether it, in any of these attachment styles um, It has a cost it has a cost on your body and on right. your on your mind and a totally. cost that needs to be that needs to be uh, That you you need to that then takes t- time to recover from
3: Right. we're biochemical electrical and so every time there's an experience chemicals are dumped into the system i like to call it the mythical homeostatic point of perfect balance because every time there's a sensing activation chemicals are added and so we're constantly swinging around this balance point Um, the window of tolerance is of course conditioned based on your very early experiences and what intensity of emotion you can tolerate and how you deal with it and all of those events are then um, all of those activations which exceed the window of tolerance are are dealt with by some strategy that we learned in our family systems and most often it's thinking so let's say if you grew up in my family uh, sadness certain types of sadness were regulated with more sadness and certain types of sadness were regulated with anger Something happens in the present moment, you have the sadness reaction, it exceeds the window of tolerance, it's in, so you have an activation that needs to be regulated and it's in the category of things that are regulated by anger and all of a sudden the mind is thinking thoughts that generate an intense anger experience, which is this dump of cortisol and adrenaline and more adrenaline and all of that stuff. Um, if the event in the present moment is ongoing, then the thought processes that generate anger are ongoing. And by the end of the day, you're completely depleted because you've had so much of this chemical stuff to work through. And that's why we we do focus so much on getting people to mentalize their thought processes and to understand that if you can be in the present moment and deal with the circumstances of the present moment, you don't need to have all of these afflictive thoughts driving um, the the body into uh, early aging. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it, this was a very fast hour, George. I can't believe how quickly this went. And yeah. I so appreciate your time. Yeah, um, absolutely. Where, where can people find out more about your training? Your the your program is you can call it a training program or what? How do you refer? Um,
3: That's interesting. Um, We call it meditation intensives.
0: Okay, now I've been calling it mindfulness, but that's not right It's it's you you, because it's a meditation program. It's not a mindfulness program. Is that is that right? right?
3: It's we use um, We're we don't I, I haven't secularized the conversation but we're also you don't have to, to accept or believe Buddhism as a religion. But I liked to include that nomenclature so that if something grabs you and is interesting, you know where to look to okay. explore it. Uh-huh. Whereas in mindfulness, where it's all stripped, you have no idea where the teaching is actually coming from or what its original intention was for. So we're, we have a website, metagroup.org, M-E-T-T-A-G-R-O-U-P.org. Uh-huh. And we actually will be opening a center next summer.
0: So, yeah. Great. And and your podcast what's over. the name of the podcast that I keep talking about? What's
3: uh- I think it's called Meditation and Attachment. Meditation okay. X attachment. We we do live in a Twitter age.
0: <laughs> okay. And what's the X for it? And is that is that X the connection is the
3: shorthand for and
0: <laughs> got it. Okay. Cool. Uh, <laughs> well, i really appreciated this, George, and right. um, and I, I know everybody out there is going to get a lot out of it. I the I I I especially um, point people to the podcast uh, specifically on attachment because mm-hmm. um, everything you covered today was is in there and more. Um, and it's just been a real pleasure. And good. I wish you a good rest of your day.
3: All right. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye. Bye.